the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with, in them we feel a kind of self-content and go our way with the thought, behold, I am so wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild ass's, ass's colt. And with the solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. That is how Charles Spurgeon opened his sermon on January 7th, 1855. Although I wish that I had opened this sermon that way in my own words. It just amazes me uh, the way God just so often tends to bring unintended things together. Uh, today at our uh, Sunday school, everything we talked about was extremely related to what we're going to talk about in our text today. And then everything Bill followed up with was almost word for word the things that I'm going to say today. And then the Matthew Henry prayer was almost word for word what I'm going to say today. So God really has brought together our subject today. And that subject is uh, in, its, in its most sophisticated form known as theology proper. Uh, more of the layman's term is attributes of God. Theology proper is the study of the attributes of God. In other words, when you start to talk about what God is like, when you start to talk about who he is and what he's done, you are now describing his attributes. Who God is, is defined in biblical language as the attributes of God, and that is commonly called theology proper. And today, we are going to finish 1 Timothy. We've been working through the pastoral epistles, and we're going to finish 1 Timothy today since we kind of covered the, the last tail end of the letter with our sermon last week. So if you would open your Bibles up to 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. Last week, we, we talked about the, uh, the, 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 how the, the love of money is the root of all evil. And we talked about the, the danger and, and, and the sinfulness of greed. And in that section, Paul talked about these false teachers and potential false teachers. And he went through this big sin list, all the different sins that these false teachers sort of qualify into. And so he's going to transition now and in many ways finish the letter by exhorting Timothy in the way he ought to walk and then finishing with a great doxology, which we will spend a significant amount of time on. So if you would follow with me, beginning in verse 11. 11, for these are the very words of God. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. 
Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen nor can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. What an epic conclusion to our book in 1 Timothy. But we obviously begin with Paul's final exhortations to Timothy. And we see him sort of give Timothy four verbs, four command, four actions. And, and they can be summarized in flee, pursue, fight, and take. Or if you grew up in more traditional Baptist circles and you appreciate Baptist alliteration, you can think of it as flee, follow, fight, and fasten. However you want to poetically word it, Paul calls Timothy to flee something, to pursue something, to fight something, and to take something. Flee, pursue, fight, and take. He, he begins in verse 11 by saying, but as for you, O man of God, so he, that, that title, O man of God, is, is, is the New Testament term describing his pastoral office. This is used throughout the Old Testament to describe the different men of God who, who, who were speaking the word of God, who were leading people. Moses, for example, was called a man of God, and we see this in the New Testament. So he's, 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 he's grabbing Timothy by his pastoral authority here which is sort of an extra bit of accountability, if you will. He's, he's grabbing him by his pastoral authority, saying, but as for you, in, in relation to, to the sinful and false teachers we just got done looking, as for you, you are to flee these things. And, and this is a powerful word. We see that in the New Testament a lot, especially in regards to sexual immorality. We flee sexual immorality, right? We don't tempt ourselves with these kinds of sins. It's not okay to put ourselves in positions where we're probably going to give in, but we think we have the willpower. No, you flee sin. You flee the temptation of sin. Get away from these things. Flee these things. But Paul also recognizes that when we flee sin, we can't just, we can't just flee aimlessly. Right? This isn't, like a, this isn't like a horror movie where you're running from the bad guy and it doesn't really matter where you're going as long as you're staying away from him. Right? That's not the kind of fleeing we're talking about. Paul recognizes that when you turn from something, you are inevitably turning to something. You can't just turn away, you're turning to. We see this principle all throughout the New Testament and how the New Testament authors will oftentimes use the words faith and repentance almost synonymously. Even though they're not quite synonymous, they can be used synonymous because you cannot exercise faith in God without repenting from whatever you used to put faith in. And likewise, you can't repent without a genuine faith. So that's why the biblical authors have no problem saying, how are you saved, faith or repentance? They'll use them interchangeably. Jesus says, believe and you shall be saved. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We are called to repent and believe. That's the gospel call. We need both. We need to turn from something and turn to something. We repent of sin, faith in Christ. And he's saying the same thing happens in our sanctification. We don't just flee sin. We need to pursue righteousness. Righteousness is not, in other words, righteousness is not something that's just going to, we're just going to do, right? We're just going to, I'm just going to, no, we, we pursue it. We chase after it. 
We flee from all of the sinful things mentioned in, in, in verses 3 through 10, and he calls them to, to pursue these, these very uh, large sort of general categories like righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. It's, it's a pretty exhaustive list. Flee from sin and pursue righteousness. That's Timothy's call, to flee and to pursue. And, and I, I love the way Paul takes the next step in explaining this process. Verse 12, in my opinion, is really the summary of his entire exhortation to Timothy. Fight the good fight of the faith. He calls Timothy to fight. Now that's a powerful word. It's an intense word. It's a violent word. As a matter of fact, every time this word is used, not just in scripture, but, but it's, it's the predominant meaning even in the Koine Greek secular literature of the time, is it's either used in the Olympic settings, so it's, it's used when, you, when you're striving after a medal. So the, the, the Olympians of Greece and Athens, they were described as these kind of fighters. Or it's used in military con contexts to literally fight. Now here's why that's so important, because Paul uses his word, and so it, what it reminds us of is this exhortation to flee sin and pursue righteousness is not easy. The Christian life of sanctification is not a cakewalk, it's a battle. We are not called to relax. We're not called, he doesn't say, just chill out, Timothy. This is a bugle horn. He is calling Timothy to take up arms. He is calling Timothy to fight. This reminds us that the Christian life is not easy. Pursuing righteousness, fleeing sin, the Christian life is not easy. That's why all throughout Pauline literature, he is comfortable describing the Christian life in terms of spiritual warfare analogies. He talks about putting on the full armor of God. He, he loves to associate the Christian life in the spiritual realm as carnal battles, warfare. Christian life is not easy. And likewise with the Olympics, Paul loved to do the same thing, to, 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 to make an analogy between the Christian life and, and, and athletics, the difficult, grueling training of athletics. Paul says regularly that he, he disciplines his body as an athlete disciplines his body. He describes the Christian life as running a race. He describes our heavenly reward as an, uh, an unfading eternal Olympic crown. Paul is constantly comparing the Christian life to battle and warfare and toil and striving and contest and conflict. He wants us to understand that the Christian life is simply not easy. And I think I'm probably preaching to the choir on this point. I don't think very many of us go a day without feeling like sometimes I am just crawling on my hands and knees into the kingdom of heaven. I, I think all of us have gone through long periods of time where we're just so ashamed of our sanctification. Why can't I just repent? Why do I keep stumbling here? Why do I keep falling here? Why am I so tempted by this in the first place? And on top of that, we have persecution, both physical, intellectual, emotional. These things are difficult to deal with. We send our kids off to college, and that's a battle in and of itself. 
Governments crashing in on the church around the world. That's a battle all around us. Internal, external, spiritual, carnal. The Christian life is difficult. It's hard. And that's why Paul calls Timothy to embrace the difficulty, to sharpen his sword, put on his armor, and fight. This really fight the good fight of faith, this, this is truly Paul's rah-rah speech. He's pumping Timothy up right now. This is the bugle horn of sanctification. This is his rallying cry. It's time to get in the fight. It's time to embrace the fight. He calls Timothy to embrace the fight. He calls Timothy to fight the good fight of faith. This is a fight worth fighting. It's the good fight. It's, it's the best fight you could ever get yourself into. But it is a fight. It's a race. It's warfare. It's toil. The Christian life is not an easy life. And that's why we have to just get so offended when we see televangelist ministries promoting Christianity as this get happy quick, get rich quick scheme. That is not the message of Jesus. That is not the message of the gospel. We obviously know as Christians that your life is better as a Christian than it is as a non-Christian. But we have to be very careful with what we mean by that because for a lot of people around the world, becoming a Christian means losing everything. They would still consider that better. Paul says, I count all things as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus. We talked about that last week. It's still a better life, but we have to be very careful when we communicate with the world what that means. Christianity does not mean your life will be easier. I would challenge you, it almost always means your life will be harder. And we'll look at that more in just a minute from the lips of our Lord. But then he transitions into something that I consider really a synonymous phrase. Fight the good fight of faith. Take up arms. And he says, to take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, this can be kind of a confusing phrase. What does it mean to take hold of the eternal life to which you were called? What does that mean? Does that, does that mean that Timothy's working for his salvation? Well, no. Here's what Paul is saying is that God has given you eternal life. He's already done that. He's already given it to you. He's called you to it. So it's now time for you to take hold of that, meaning it's now time for you to act to, 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 to fashion your life in accordance with that call. It's now time to do the things that that call requires of you. In other words, here's how Paul is using this phrase eternal life here. In theological circles, they call this, the eternal life is a concept of what we call already but not yet. Already but not yet. And here's what theologians mean when they describe something like, there are tons of New Testament realities that because they are guaranteed, because they are indefinite, because God has guaranteed they, they will, they're inevitable, you can speak of them as having already happened. But there's a more literal context that you can also speak of them where they haven't already happened. We see this all throughout the scriptures. The kingdom of God is one of them. I can show you texts that say the kingdom of God is here, but I can also show you texts that say we're still waiting for it. Because it's not fully consummated yet. It's an inevitable thing. It's a guaranteed, but it's not fully consummated. One of my favorite, we don't have to turn there, but you can just write this down. Read Ephesians chapter 1, and you will find that just, I can't remember exactly the verses, uh, but if you just read like 1 through 11, you should cover them, 1 through 13. You'll find that within two verses, Paul talks about how we have been given in Christ uh, an, an eternal heritage or an eternal blessing. 
And he says explicitly, you have been given to it. It's yours in Christ. Through Christ, you have obtained it, is what Paul says. And then a verse and a half later, he says, and then the Father has given us the Spirit as a pledge of the internal inheritance we're waiting to obtain. He, on the surface, contradicts himself within two verses. I've obtained it in Christ, but I'm waiting to obtain it, and I need the Spirit in order to obtain it. It's an already, but not yet. And, and what I'm getting to in all that here is that eternal life is an already, but not yet. Is it accurate for a believer to say, I have eternal life? Yes, that's accurate. That's all throughout the book of John. Jesus says, believe and you will have eternal life. If you have believed on Christ, you have eternal life. But if you read Romans chapter 8, in our famous passage, what we call the golden chain of redemption, your salvation, your eternal life is not actually completed until you've gone to heaven and been glorified. So in a certain sense, you have eternal life already. It's inevitable, it's guaranteed, no one can take it away from you, it's yours. But you're not in heaven yet. You're not in your, you're gonna die. <laughs> Everyone in this room is gonna die. So you're obviously not living eternally right now. Eternal life is something we're still waiting for. We have it already, but we don't have it, not yet. It depends on how we look at it. And so eternal life is something that Timothy, to a certain extent, has. He's believed, it can't be taken away, but he has not been glorified yet. That eternal life, in another sense, is waiting for him, and he needs to take hold of it. He needs to live as if he has been called. This is what Paul says in the book of Philippians 127. He says, live your, manner in a live your manner of life in accordance with the gospel. The way we live, the way we behave, should reflect the eternal life that's been given to us. We take hold of eternal life in that we act and live as those who have been called to eternal life. That's why I say Paul has really just summarized his point. Fight the good fight, take hold of eternal life. These are communicating the same thing. Get to work. Pursue righteousness. Flee from sin. And then he, he, he sort of holds his confession of faith in front of his face here, right? He doesn't just say, take hold of eternal life to which you were called. He says, and about which... You made the good confession the presence of many witnesses. This was most likely Timothy's baptism when Timothy professed his faith in Christ in public. And this is one of the reasons why we want to do baptisms as a church in front of people because our profession should be public. We are not trying to follow Jesus in secret. We are not trying to hide our faith and hide our Christianity from people. We want to shout it from the rooftops. And here's what Paul is doing. Paul is reminding Timothy, you've made the confession. You signed up. Don't quit now. We remember, all of us, we were witnesses. We were there. We heard you give yourself to Christ. We heard you join this thing. Don't quit. That's the implication of this. Because if, if we're being honest with ourselves, to quit something you have started is far more shameful than to never start at all. And if you don't believe me, I want us just to, to hear that because it's, I think it's an important message for evangelicalism today. Turn to Luke chapter 14. Jesus' message in Luke 14 is essentially what Paul is implicitly reminding Timothy of by bringing up his confession. Beginning in verse 25, the, the ESV, this is obviously not in the original text. When you have little headings over the paragraphs, those are not in the originals. The translators made those calls. The ESV calls this the cost of discipleship. Beginning in verse 25, Now great crowds accompanied Christ, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. 
Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. It is far more humiliating and shameful to start something and quit than to not start at all. So Jesus is saying, you know, typically we, we tend to preach the call to come to Christ as this very flippant, trivial, yeah, come, come one, come all. It's great. He loves you. Come on, come, come to Christ. But you notice the rich young ruler was saying that. He was saying, I want to come to Christ. Sign me up. And what was Jesus' response to him? Was it awesome? Now I can let my father know, mark this down, write this down. We added another baptism to our mission journey. That's another number that I can report to God the Father. We got another person who said yes to Christ. He said yes to Christ and Jesus says, uh-uh. I don't think you know what you're doing. And he sent him away. We have the same thing here. It's not a trivial come one, come all. Jesus is saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't come to me unless you fully understand what this is going to cost you. And here's why. Because it's humiliating, shameful, and embarrassing to just start building a tower before you've decided, I have the resources and the funds to do this, and then you get halfway through, you quit, and now everyone passes by and sees your half-completed tower, and they mock you. And Jesus is saying, spiritually, you don't want to do that. And back in our text, Paul is telling Timothy, you don't want to do that. You don't want Timothy to be remembered forever as that one up-and-coming young pastor with all this potential who couldn't finish the job. Remember your confession and fight. Keep going. Finish your tower. This is a call to perseverance. Because he's not just called to fight temporarily. He's not just called to fight through some difficult circumstances coming his way. How long is Timothy, and by extension, how long are Christians supposed to engage in fighting the good fight of the faith? To keep the commandment, verse 14, unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian faith will get very easy one day. Not here, not now. It will be easy one day. Until either you die or the Lord comes, we are called to fight. And we are called to keep fighting until the Lord comes. And I love how Paul makes sure to throw in there that the God, God the Father is going to send Christ when he pleases. We don't know the day or the hour. So don't buy books and listen to preachers who have predictions of when Christ is going to come. We don't know that. Only God does. But here's Paul's point. Until it happens, whenever it's going to happen, a year from now, a billion years from now, I don't know. But you fight until that moment. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Fight the good fight of the faith. Again, this is a call to perseverance. This is a call to arms. To keep the gospel. To pursue holiness until Christ returns. But now here's the thing. If we were to just stop there, then this, this sermon would almost be kind of discouraging. Right? Like, man, Sunday, that was, that was intense. We showed up and we were called to fight and toil this miserable, difficult race and then he sent us home. But Paul doesn't, Paul doesn't end it there. That's not where Paul ends it. He doesn't say fight the good fight. See you next time. He gives Timothy motivation. He gives him fuel for this difficult charge. Why is it worth it? 
If the Christian life isn't as easy as the televangelists tell me it is, if Jesus is the one saying, count the cost, why is it worth it? Why even bother? Well, he gives them two motivations. The first is the presence of God in Christ Jesus, and then the second is the worthiness of God in Christ Jesus. He says in Verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, God who has already been good to you, the God who has already sustained you, who has already created you, who is currently sustaining you, who is giving you grace and mercy and the ability to finish this good, merciful God who gave you life, who upholds you, I charge you to do this in his presence. He's been good to you already. Right? This is not meritorious. We're not earning God's love. We're not earning eternal life. We're working because he has already given it. He has given us physical life. He has given us eternal life. He is the giver of life. And not just in the presence of the God who gave life, but also in the presence of Christ Jesus, who did the same thing you did. Who's standing before Pontius Pilate, he confessed to the truth, and it cost him everything. That's the leader I'm calling you to follow. I'm not calling you to follow a leader who doesn't understand your struggles and your pain. He doesn't understand the commitment. I'm calling you in the presence of someone who's been there, done that. The person I'm asking you to, to, to follow, the person who's leading you, is someone who has done these things. He has walked this walk. He too made a good confession. He too did it in the midst of persecution. He too lost his life because of his confession to Pontius Pilate. He's saying, God who has been good to you and given you life in Christ Jesus, who has fought this fight already, that's your motivation. That's what makes the fight worth it. But more than that, after discussing how the Father will send this Son who made the presence, the the confession in front of Pilate for a second time, he then breaks off into what we call a doxology. A doxology is most simply, it's a praise to God. And so we see it's not just the presence of Christ and God the Father, it's the worthiness. And here he specifically focuses on God the Father. Now, why do I see that? We're going to break all these uh, down individually, but notice how he says the he in verse 15, which he will display at the proper time, he who is blessed. So the question is who becomes the he? I would say grammatically it's the Father, but to prove this more specifically, we see this because one of the attributes we're going to talk about is that this he is someone who no one has ever seen nor can see. But the very author of this letter saw Jesus. And he promises that we will all one day see Jesus. So we're talking here about God the Father. And so this requires me to do something really really important for our trinitarian theology. Never, ever, ever let anyone trick you into thinking that because God the Father is distinguished from the Son, that the Son is somehow not God. As Trinitarians, we believe they're distinguishable. And we see this all the time in the New Testament, especially because the Greek, the, the Greek writers had sort of common titles that they liked to give to each of the members of the Trinity. And this is what throws English readers off a lot because the common title given to Jesus is not in English what we call the word God, it's Lord. It's the Father who's usually called God and it's the Son who's called Lord and it's the Spirit who's called Spirit. And that's the typical titles that they bear. Now, they are interchangeable. In 1 Corinthians, Paul calls the Holy Spirit the Lord. And all throughout the New Testament, you can find it in the book of Hebrews, you can find it in Luke's gospel, Jesus is called Theos, he's called God. 
So they're interchangeable titles, but for the most part, the Father's God, Christ is the, the, the Lord, and the Spirit is the Spirit. And so what happens is people will say things like, look, we've got two different people here, God and his son, Jesus, and we're talking about God and all these exalted, and, and, and we'll even say, the Bible will even say things like Jesus and his God. But that's not saying Jesus isn't God. Again, as Trinitarians, we make a distinction between the persons. That's supporting our position. So do not think that just because Paul breaks off and focuses on the Father here and says all these wonderful theistic things about the Father, that none of these can be applied to the Son. As a matter of fact, one of the things he calls the Father is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And guess who has called that twice in the book of Revelation? The Son. <laughs> So just because he's only talking about the Father when he says he is alone immortal does not mean he's not also talking about this. He could apply that to the Son. It doesn't mean he is, but it doesn't mean he couldn't. So don't let that fool you. The deity of Christ is crystal clear in the New Testament. And the fact that the members are sometimes separated actually proves our point. Because here's what you have. If you're not a Trinitarian, then you now have a New Testament contradiction. Because we've got Paul calling the Father the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we've got John calling Jesus the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Only one being can occupy that chair. So if we don't believe in the Trinity, now we have a serious problem. But it's because of our Trinitarian theology that these things flow seamlessly. They share the same being, so I'm very comfortable with calling either one of them the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So don't let that trick you. But the reason I bring all that up is because here we are specifically focusing on God the Father. And look at the amazing attributes that we're going to talk. We're going to see, Paul is essentially, these are not exhaustive, an exhaustive list of God's attributes. But it demonstrating to us that God is worthy of this fight, that God is worthy of the race, that when we look to God, it makes all other things worth it. He gives us three important attributes of God. His sovereignty, his eternality, and his transcendence. God is sovereign, God is eternal, and God is transcendent. And it's actually as we look at these things that we get our fuel for the fight. It's when we dwell and fix our eyes on the majesty and goodness of God that all toil, all struggle becomes immensely worth it. Spurgeon finished his introductory by saying his introduction by saying this, and while it's humbling and expanding, this subject, the attributes of God, is eminently consolatory. It consoles you. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing of the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there's a balm for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. It is when we fix our eyes on who God really is 
That is motivation and fuel for everything he calls us to. It's as simple as this. Why fight the good fight of faith? Because God is worth it. He's worth it. He's worth my every sorrow. He's worth my every toil. He's worth my every persecution. He's worth it. And that is what Paul is reminding Timothy of. This fight is difficult, but your God is worth it. And so Paul takes our minds now and he fixates us on God for a moment here. And look at the things he says. He says halfway through verse, beginning in verse 15, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That term sovereign is, 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 is an expression for authority. As a matter of fact, the literal Greek word here is, is actually a word for like a prince or some kind of king. That's why if, if you've got an old King James, it'll use the word potentate. The point that he's trying to say is the first thing he wants us to understand about God is he is the tippity-top authority. Everyone answers to him. The whole created order eventually answers to God. Now, it's not to say there aren't other legitimate authorities. Kings are legitimate authorities. There are lords that are legitimate authorities. The Bible gives us tons of legitimate authorities. But there is one authority over all of them. God is the sovereign. He is in control and has authority over absolutely everything. Every king answers to him. Every lord answers to him. He is sovereign. He is, in fact, the ultimate authority. And this is why I, I believe, and, and I'm going to say this boldly, I believe in theocracy. Now, many of what your minds might conjure up when you hear that word, I might not agree with. But I do not believe that secular democracy is a good thing. And this is one of the reasons why. Because what a secular democracy does is we hear things that we hear all the time here in America. Well, you can't bring God into this. We're supposed to be secular in our legislation. Well, you can't, you can't bring God into this because not everyone believes in God. And so we, we have to do things in a secular manner here. But you show me one place in the Bible that tells me I'm supposed to pretend God the Father is not the King of kings and Lord of lords when I step into the office as a governor. You show me one scripture verse where Jesus or God the Father says, I am the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the only sovereign, except if you're in politics. Then you can just work things out among yourselves. I have authority over your family. I have authority over your self-government. I have authority over the church. I'm the head of the church. But when it comes to the government, I have no jurisdiction there. Jesus Christ, God the Father, they are the head of this country, whether we like it or not. And they at no point in time ever expect or command us to pretend like that's not true during our civil affairs. Jesus is king of this nation. God the Father is the only sovereign, and we are not called to suspend that belief at any point in time. He has total authority whether we like it or not. And he has this because he is the creator. He is the all-powerful one who made everything, and he never relinquishes that authority. God is sovereign over all things, and every legitimate authority ultimately answers to him. Everyone answers to God. Policemen, politicians, pastors, mothers, fathers, children, we will stand before God and give an account 
of how we utilize our vocation, our lives, our families. He is the highest authority, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is over and above everyone and everything. But the text doesn't stop there. The text goes on to illuminate our minds more of the goodness and majesty of God and saying that he is not only the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but he alone has immortality. Verse 16, he alone has immortality. Now, if we don't dive into this, we have a bit of a problem on our hands because there are lots of immortal beings. I'm preaching to them right now. You realize that your soul will last forever. Your body will die, but your soul will never die. You're an immortal being, not physically immortal. You will live forever. And if you're not convinced by that, well, because we still technically die, well, then I'll just take it one step up to the angels. Once the angels were created, they never experienced any kind of death. They don't die physically. They're immortal, eternal beings. So what does Paul mean when he says that God alone has immortality? Well, here's ultimately what, God, what Paul is saying here, is that God is the only self-sufficient being. Today in our Sunday school, we learned the word for this is called aseity. He is the only one who ontologically, objectively, in his character and nature is immortal. Everything else is immortal because God makes them immortal. Your immortality is not natural to your being. You're a created being and God has to gift you and sustain you in order for you to exist. In other words, if you take the picture of all the created and uncreated realm of reality and you take God out of it, you now lose everything. Once you take God out of the picture, everything goes. But if you go the other way around, you take everything out of the picture, God remains. He is the only one who in his character and being is immortal. He is the only one who exists forever, cannot die, and always will exist. And it's not because he's borrowing that from someone else. That's just who he is. If you want to be immortal, you need God to give you that, to sustain you with that. God is the only being in the world that is completely and entirely self-sufficient. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need his creation. He doesn't need anything. He is by himself immortal, self-sufficient, eternal. You can try as hard as you want to be a self-sufficient being. You can move off the grid so the government doesn't know where you are. You can sew your own clothes. You can build your own house. You can grow your own food. But you are never self-sufficient because you don't create the air you breathe that you need to breathe. You didn't make your own body. You didn't create the seed you're planting to grow and harvest and eat. You are always dependent on other things and other people. You are never, ever totally self-sufficient. But God is dependent on nothing and no one. He is the only being in all of the created and uncreated real, real realm who can honestly say, I don't need anything. He alone is immortal. As a matter of fact, this was Paul's epic point to the Epicurean Athenian philosophers. Turn to Acts chapter 17 for a minute. As we meditate on the glory of God. Acts 
Acts chapter 17, this, this whole passage is, is, is amazing. You're not supposed to have favorite Bible verses and favorite Bible passages, but I do, and this is one of them. Acts 17, Paul goes to Athens and he's not even supposed to be there. He's waiting for his missionary companions so they can go somewhere else, but then he sees Athens is covered in false gods. It's covered in idols, and it grieves him and angers him and moves him. So he just says, okay, okay, I can't, I can't stop here and say nothing. That's just not Paul. That's not his custom. So Paul, while he's waiting for his brothers, he goes into Athens, he begins to debate, he begins to preach, and he's doing such a good job that they bring him to the, what they called the Areopagus. And this was, this was this little stadium built on top of a hill, and it was where the greatest Greek minds, philosophers, would come to debate ideas. So Paul has now been given a stage in front of the secular world's smartest men. These are the most brilliant minds. These are students of Plato, and these are brilliant Greek philosophers. These are Greek philosophers who their schools of thought have greatly influenced Western culture as we know it. Paul is standing in front of some of the world's greatest minds, and here's what he says to these brilliant men. Look at verse 22 of Acts 17. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. And then I love what he says. What therefore you worship is unknown, I proclaim to you. <laughs> He's saying, you know what? You're right. God is unknown to you. I agree. You don't know him. So let me introduce you to God. And look at what he says. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. And we're going to see this in First Timothy in just a second. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He alone has immortality. He needs nothing. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. This is what Paul just got done telling you. God the Father who gives you life in the presence of God who gives life to all things. Here Paul is reminding them, not only does God not need anything, but everything needs God. He is the one who gives life and breath and everything. Everything you have, you ultimately owe to the good, sovereign, powerful, gracious hand of God. And he made from one man every nation to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and their boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Without God, you don't move, you don't live, you don't even exist. And you are constantly in him. Without him, you fall apart. Every breath you take is a gracious gift from God. And every breath you take is a reminder that God is always upholding you, giving you life, and supporting you. And no one is doing that to God. He alone is immortal. He always has existed. He always will exist. And the only other beings who live forever are beings who need God's power and grace to do so. That is why we are not the alone immortal ones. As we go back to 1 Timothy, 
we are reminded of these great truths that God is the King of kings. He is the sovereign. That God is alone immortal. He is the self-sufficient eternal one. And then we also see 1 Timothy chapter 6. He finishes by telling us that he dwells in an unapproachable light whom no one has seen or can see. Now, this may be a reference to his glory because we see in the book of Exodus and in the New Testament with Jesus as well that glory manifests itself in bright, overcoming light. So there's probably some kind of reference to the glory of God here. But what Paul, with the qualification no one can see, what he's really talking about here is God's invisibility. But when we talk about God being invisible, we're talking about more than just not being able to see him like, like the wind is invisible. We're talking about God's transcendence. Like, why is this an amazing thing? Why should our minds be amazed that we can't see God? Why is that impressive? You see, Mormons don't believe that. They don't believe that because they, they're not impressed by that. They think it's more impressive to be seen and to be held. But the reason this is so impressive is because we're talking about God's transcendence. It is an amazing thing that, as Paul said in Acts 17, God does not dwell in temples made by human hands. As if he can be contained Right? When we go looking for God, we don't need to open up a box and try to find him. When we go looking for God, we don't have to look at these temples made by human hands. What does Paul say in Acts 17? He is not far from anyone. Because he's transcendent. He's outside of time. He's outside of space. And although he can interact within those spheres, he is transcendent above them. He is the omnipresent, everywhere invisible God. And that should blow our minds, to use a carnal phrase. That, should, that is something that we truly cannot understand, that he is everywhere, all the time, unseen, but present. You can't see him. You can go looking for him and you're never going to see him because his being is too great to just find in the woods somewhere. You don't pick God up like an arrowhead. He's outside of time. He's outside of space. He cannot be seen. Yet Paul says he is not far from anyone. It's as if he's nowhere and everywhere at the same time. He dwells in an unapproachable light whom no one has seen nor no one can see. He is transcendent and outside of us. Now, there is a glory to being able to see and we're not denying that. This is one of the beautiful things about the incarnate son. This is one of the things that made God so merciful is his transcendence, which we will never truly understand nor truly comprehend. He showed us mercy and grace by coming in the person and works of Jesus Christ so that for once we finally could touch him. And it is a beautiful thing to know that when we go into eternity forever, we will be with the risen Lord. We will be able to see Christ. But we need to understand that before his incarnation, as John 1.1 says, he was with the Father as God. He also was transcendent and unseen. And the fact that our God is not like the pagan idols throughout Old and New Testaments who have dwelling places and homes and bodies and they're temporally bound, our God is transcendent, above time, above nature, invisible, outside of it all, yet with us in every moment. That's the God we serve. Our God is the ultimate authority of all the created universe. Our God is self-sufficient and alone immortal. Our God is transcendent and omnipresent. 
Our God is quite literally the greatest thing our minds can imagine. And Paul says, that's why we fight. Why fight? Because my God is transcendent and powerful and good and gracious. God is worth the fight. We're not fighting to merit something. We're not fighting to earn something. We fight because our God is worth the fight. The Christian life is toil, warfare, and conflict, but we fight to the very end because the God we worship is worth the fight. So that is my charge to you today as we finish this first book in our pastoral series. I would call you, just as Paul called Timothy, you, O Christian, in the presence of God who gives life to all things and in the presence of Jesus Christ who made the good confession to Pontius Pilate, I charge you today, fight the fight. Take hold of the eternal life to which you have been called. Flee from sin, pursue righteousness, and when it gets difficult, when it gets hard, when it becomes burdensome, fix your eyes on the glory and majesty of our triune God and remember he's worth every bit.